WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week we're joined by the creator of Boom Studios' new series, The Last Witch, and co creator of the IDW series, Kill Shakespeare, Connor McCreary. Welcome to the show, Connor. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, for those of you uh, scoring at home, uh, it's timeliness zero, Connor one, because. Uh, yeah, I uh, I wandered into this thing a little late. So if you know if I seem kind of clamped or upset or I give the guys the pin code to my like ATM, it's just it's just the Canadian guilt really just racking me to to, to little pieces. Oh, it's 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 all good. It's all good. Uh, yeah. So um, let's let's start with our icebreaker question because you are a first time guest. Uh, what what comics do you remember reading when you first got into the medium? Oh wow. Um, I mean, I guess. Hmm. You know, it's funny. I think, I think for like a lot of people, I kind of started off with, you know, Archie comics, you know, like that was something that I remember being around. I'm not even quite sure. My parents weren't really anti-comics people, but I think like a lot of parents, you know, like I'm in, you know, like forties, <coughs> um, you know, so a lot of people, you know, my we all are. Right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. Um, you know, it's, you know, comics, it was still kind of before they were starting to be accepted as, Hey, like, you know, this is literature. Um, but my dad was from Ireland. So I remember reading like Beano and, um, what was the other one? I'm trying to remember, but the, a bunch of the British comics, uh, were kind of kicking around when I was a kid. And so I, I remember reading those and that's kind of a very different thing. Um, and then the other one, I just, I was a Spider-Man fan from a young age. I'm, I'm not quite sure who put a Spider-Man comic in my hands first, but I just, you know, I feel like Spider-Man is the perfect hero for when you're a young, a young kid, right? Like he's, you know, he's got some, some weight to him, you know, as, as his tragic backstory, but like he's fun, he's quippy, the villains are colorful, like it's really the perfect pop, pop candy as opposed to say something like Batman, who I also love. But I mean, you know, there's not a lot of, there's not that many Batmans, especially when we were growing up, that you could give to like a eight-year-old right like you could but like th that's heavy stuff spider-man was just kind of in your wheelhouse um you know and then embarrassingly i became a big moon knight fan not realizing batman existed but that's okay moon knight's still cool too some people have done really good stuff with moon knight don't you know it's i i, I forgive myself um but those were the big ones and of course also you know being a knucklehead, head uh, as soon as i found out that alpha flight existed i was a big alpha flight fan you know it was really cool that there were canadian superheroes um and I always, I would, you know, I feel like that's still one of the great under underrated books. And uh, I, you know, I mean, we're probably never getting an Alpha Flight TV show, but boy, if we did, I would be, I would be a happy camper. That that definitely would be something. Uh, and I will say, in terms of you know not knowing what to give a uh, a kid to get them into Batman in the you know the eighties, let's say the eighties, um, Matt's first Batman comic was a DC encyclopedia that had Batman in it. So yeah. it was. An issue of who's who that was all the b characters and you, you had batman and batman of earth 2 and batman's utility belt and the batmobile and batgirl and the bat cave and the schematics of the bat cave and all the stuff in the utility belt it was like that was so cool that that that, that sold me on the, on batman and it explains so so much about how i have thousands <laughs> now, of now i'm curious and the who's who because I remember, because I, I was a Marvel kid, so I, I had the Marvel Marvel superhero encyclopedia, and I, mm -hmm. I loved that, right? Like that was that was like just like, oh, comparing their power levels and everything. But in Who's Who, for Batman, did they talk about who built the Batcave? I believe they did. It, it's, I mean, 
I still have that comic, but it's been a long time since I read it. I intend to reread them. I finally, about a year and change ago, completed a run of all of those original who's who's at a con. And now I have to, cons, remember those? Weren't they fun? (laughs) Um, (laughs) I miss dollar bins. Um, But, but, I intend to read them all again now that I ha- and DC's releasing the entire run and finally because that's the way of all things. Every <laughs> time I've completed one of these runs of DC books from the '80s, whether it's the Ostrander Suicide Squad or the, these Who's Who's or whatever, it's like, oh hey, here they come in a nice tray that you know cost me probably more than the the floppies did at a dollar bins, but would have taken up a whole hell of a lot less time. Like then you wouldn't have had the pride and the happiness of getting, you know, there is, there is, there is a certain level of like personal pride when you go through that dollar bin and you find something and you're like, yo, what, you know, especially when they go through the dollar bin and every once in a while you find something and you're like, oh, this should not be in the dollar bin. Uh-huh. And then you have that like moral tug of war of like, do I tell them that this is like not a dollar bin comic or do I just like, do I buy it and then tell them, but does that make it look like I'm rubbing it in? But really, I'm just trying to warn them for the next guy. Yeah, it's a, or do you just like, you just put it in your pocket, you pay the dollar and you walk outside and you're like, you know, actually nowadays you quickly take an Instagram photo with it, I guess, or something. You're like, ha ha, you know, golden comic Apple planet, you suck. <laughs> you know, as someone who worked in comics retail for 15 years, when you put out the dollar bins, you, you as the retailer kind of accept, you know, you're going to sell a bunch of books that are worth, 25 cents for a dollar and you're going to sell 10 times as many of those as you do every book that is worth more than a dollar that you're going to sell. So it comes, it comes out in your favor or you at least break even in the end. The, The ones that sting the worst are when it's not worth anything when you're selling it for a dollar. And then Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember (laughs) the, the, Ultimate Fallout number four, the first appearance of Miles Morales. Right, right. The shop I was working at ordered real heavy on it because it was the first appearance of this new Spider-Man. And initially, though, it didn't yep. take off. And so we People had... were not cool with it originally, I remember. Yeah, and we had like 50 extra copies that we just wound up putting in dollar bins. And somebody one day, and this was, I mean long before Spider-Verse, but somebody just came and he bought them all because he said, you know, someday this book's going to be worth something. And he was right. Or when we gave away Ultimate Spider-Man number ones at a, like the, the festival, like the annual town, like street fair. Because again, my boss ordered heavy on it and it was at the time, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was like people were buying it, but it didn't look like it was going to be a huge, so we just gave away and, you know, Granted, we got people coming back wanting yeah. to get more of it, which was good, but nobody count. We did not count on that book being, you know, a almost key issue after that. Yeah. yeah. Just no, I, remember, of- I used to work at the Silver Snail and I, I always feel like the guy who ran it used to, I think he used to sneak in a few good books into the dollar bin on purpose because he had that sense of like, <laughs> people would find something that they knew had some value and then so they would. They, you know, some guys would just keep digging and they would only look for those. But then you had a chunk who, well, they'd grab a few more or there'd be something, you know, and it'd be like that, well, maybe this will be worth something, you know? Well, maybe this is good. And, you know, and, and it worked. I mean, you know, it's, 
you know, selling a couple of eight, 10, 12, $15 books, you know, there'd just be a couple of them in there. And then you could, you know, and he would move through that bin, you know, and like you said, it's uh, kind of the cat and mouse game, but it's kind of the fun, right? I mean, you remember those things. And at the end of the day, I mean, you know, yes, it's retail and you, you're doing it to turn a profit. But, you know, I've always liked to think that comics retail is, you know, it's one of those, one of those businesses where it's, <laughs> I mean, hell, if you're doing it to make money, you could do something else. Uh, um, you know, like it, it is a little bit about, it is about story, you know, the story of the story of the comics, but also the story of the, the interactions with the customers and, and remembering those books. And, you know, I think that's kind of a satisfying thing about being in this industry in some ways. Um, you know, <laughs> so obviously <laughs> I've chosen comics, making money is not the key uh, driving force in my life. <laughs> Well, well, let's talk about those comics you're making. Uh, you, you've got a new series out from uh, Boom Studios, Last Witch. Uh, the first issue came out January 6th. Um, Matt, I will lean on you once again to uh, do us the honor of lending your golden voice to the uh, solicit. It's one time of year when the witch, known as the Kalach, hunts the children of the village. So Shirsha, a brave and reckless young girl, decides this is the perfect opportunity to defy her father and discover the secrets of the witch's tower. When the Kalak captures Shirsa and her brother Brahm, their lives are forever changed in ways they never expected. Now, Shirsha will have to save everyone she loves by discovering the truth about the mysterious mark on her shoulder and embracing her secret magic powers. I'm gonna start setting those to background music. <laughs> in a world, <laughs> one woman. <laughs> Um, so what, what's the, uh, what's the origin story for this project? Okay. Well, I mean, so the last witch is something that was kicking around uh, with me for a while. Actually, it, it's probably more than a decade ago. It was actually right after I first put out, uh, some of the, uh, kill Shakespeare, which I guess we're talking like 2010 now. Um, and I had been doing, I did a show out in the East coast, uh, Halcon in Halifax. And uh, one of the people I met there was running a small publishing company. And he reached out to me and said, hey, I'm doing this charity book called Fearsome Fables. I'm looking for some light horror stories. You know, I really love Kill Shakespeare. Would you do something for it? And I said, I'd love to, but I'm not an artist. Like, I, I won't be able to turn around any, you know, I, don't, I, I won't be able to turn around a piece of work for you. I don't, I don't have an artist that I can just, like, grab like that, mm -hmm. at least that I know of. And he was like, well, why don't you just write prose? And I was like, more? Um, you know, I mean, I had a bit of a, I had a background. I was a journalist originally in my career. So, I mean, it wasn't like I was totally uncomfortable with the notion of, you know, <laughs> putting words together without pictures to make them better. Um, but I was still like, I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't written fiction, like prose, like, but I, you know, why not? It's for charity, right? So, you know, worst comes to worst, it's an awful story. And, you know, maybe somebody sees my name in the cover and likes to kill Shakespeare, buys it and hates me as a writer, but hey, it went for charity. Great stuff. So I, I came up with this story of this young girl who desperately wants to be special, desperately wants people to see her as special. And in uh, Celtic mythology, they have their version of Groundhog Day. Um, now where our Groundhog Day is, you know, a little rodent comes out and if he sees his shadow, he scurries back in because it's more winter. Because <laughs> it's Ireland, it's a little bloodier than that. Um, <laughs> for them, it's called Imbolc. And the, if it's sunny, it means this Kalak, this, this queen of witches is out. And a sunny day is same thing. It means it's going to be more winter. And so she's out that day looking for firewood so that she can stay warm for the next you know, six to eight weeks and also presumably cook children. Um, so this story takes place on Imbolc. She, the young girl, Sersha, has been warned not to go into the forest. 
but she wants to prove that she's special. She has this rivalry with this young boy in the village, Padraig, and the two of them make this pact that they're going to go deep into the forest, past the hedge where nobody ever goes because the whole village is convinced that past the hedge, only bad things lie. That's where the Kalok must live. And they decide they're going to try to find this tower that apparently she lives in, and they're going to bring back some souvenir. Uh, and so that was the story. It was this little girl going in and her little brother following him and, or her and finding a tower and what happens in that tower. And when she comes out, she is a very different, she's no longer this little girl. She's really a young woman because of this kind of terrifying encounter that's, that's occurred. And so I'd had that idea kicking around and I'd always, you know, I, I, I ended up being pretty happy with the prose story. And I always thought, oh, it's kind of neat. And I, a few years ago, I was doing a Adventure Time and regular show books for Boom. Um, mostly this one crossover graphic novel, which was really fun to write. And my editor there, Shannon Waters, had always been like, oh, you know, we should, we should keep talking. And there's another editor, Whitney, uh, who actually had reached out to me. She was my main editor on Adventure Time Regular Show and was like, do you have any other pitches? Um, you know, and so of course, as a writer, you've got a whole bunch of stuff ideally kicking around. And now normally when I do pitches, normally I'm the guy who's like, here's my 45 page pitch, right? It's like, <laughs> and like four pages of character design and like explanations and then like 30 pages of appendix. It's like, if all you want to do is just like read the one page summary and see the art and the storytelling and look at the characters, cool. But if you want to know how the magic works in this world or the political machinations between the Martians and the moon colonies and the asteroid belt, like screw you Expanse. Um, like, you know, it's there. Oh, it's there, baby. And like no editor of the world ever reads any of that crap. But, you know, it's there just because. So normally I have so much stuff and I've, I've plotted out so much stuff. But for this one, all I had was this, I had this story, girl goes in the woods, there's a tower, something bad happens, she comes out. That's all I had. I mean, that's, that's not enough to be a full story. So in the pitch, I was like, oh yeah, there's this coven and there's this twist and there's a, uh, you know, the eater of the world who's going to come out. And, you know, so I sent this thing. But I said, you know, I sent all these other pitches where, I, like I said, I had, you know, I put them down on one page, but I had like 25 pages of backup. I was ready. And so, of course, they came back and were like, oh, this witch one. That's really cool. Like, you know, it was Friday. And they're like, hey, on Monday, can we like, can we find out more? Can you send us all the stuff about like the coven and how that twist works? And what is this eater of the world? And how does power and magic work in this world? And I was like, yeah. Sure, <laughs> and so that's what I did that weekend. And thankfully, on Monday, I had enough. I had enough uh, plausible bull, uh, plausible bullshit uh, in my in my mind that I could talk to them and say, "Oh, this is where it goes." Um, so that was kind of funny because that was, you know, that was the first time in my career where I'd basically been like, "Yeah, I'll just throw this one out and see what happens." And of course, that's that's what they were interested in. And so that's kind of where the book began. You know, it, it began with just this little short story for a charity book and. And even the pitch, like, you know, was, wasn't really all that fleshed out. And so it's been a very different process writing it because usually I'm very like, I know exactly where I'm going. And this one I did, I did beat it out, but I think there was a lot more flexibility and this story changed, I would say a lot more from beginning to end than a lot of the other stuff I've written. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's maybe because it was, it wasn't as set in stone when I started. So it's, it's interesting. I, there's parts of it that I really like about that process. And then there's sometimes, you know, it can be frustrating after that. For it's The first draft was more frustrating in the sense that it felt farther away than most of the stuff I write after a first draft. But I think we got to a good place ultimately. I'm mean, looking here, I'm like, oh yeah, the first book I wrote like seven drafts, which is more than I usually do, but was about Kill Shakespeare. Kill Shakespeare, I think we wrote seven or eight drafts the first couple of issues. Because we were, just, you know, Anthony and I didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were just figuring crap out. 
So um, this was originally supposed to be uh, graphic novels, correct? Yes. Um, was this like a pandemic swerve where it went from, from you know, OGNs to, to floppies? Pandemic swerve with roadkill. You know, like we, we tried to get out of the way and we didn't. And we're like, oh my gosh, I hope that was a squirrel and not a small cat. Like, yeah, it was... Uh, yeah, something got left on the road behind us. Um, but we didn't back over it because that was that would be just wrong. Um, no, so yeah, it was originally supposed to be <laughs> originally was supposed to be one book, and Whitney was the commissioning editor, and so we had chatted, and I was like, okay, it's gonna be about two hundred and twenty odd pages. You know, it's gonna be you know this is meant to be like a big adventure. Um, and I think I came back to her and I said, you know what, I might need more. I might need an extra fifteen twenty pages. She's like, okay, like from a business perspective, we might have to come back and we'll talk a little bit about advance and stuff then because obviously there's more expense there, but go for it. And she had moved in and ended up getting this great job with Penguin Random House and Shannon came in. And so I delivered this book and it's, you know, it was closer to 250 than 220. And she gets it and she's like, wow, I really, really enjoyed this. But like, what is this? And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, the contract says it's gotta be 150 pages. And I'm like, well, the contract says like, at least 150 pages, but I, I thought we'd had this conversation that, oh, Whit said this and I might be a little long. And she said, if I was, you know, we'll talk, we'll talk business terms. And none of that, for whatever reason, got conveyed. So we were sitting there with this book and she's like, I can get you to 180 pages. That's what I can get you to before we have real problems. But she's like, I don't see how that works because this book is so tightly plotted. Uh, I don't see how we can lose 70 pages. So we were kind of like, and I just had this other project this all, you know, I call, you know, I, I like to picture it as Goonies with Ghosts that had gotten like mixed at two separate publishers after it had been picked up because both of them ran into financial issues and were like, sorry, we, we can't do this anymore. One was like, sorry, we can't do it anymore. The other one was like, we can do it, but we have to like dramatically change the terms. And the artist and I were like, at that point, yeah. you know, at that point, we're better kickstarting the book kind of thing. And, you know, and nobody had done anything out of malice. It's just, you know, comics. So I was sitting there going like, oh my gosh, like I'd spent, you know, a year or so on this other book and I'd written the whole thing, you know, a hundred pages were drawn at that point and then it fell on its face. And I was just like, is this, you know, now I've written this 250 page book and now it sounds like they're like, maybe we just have to walk away because we don't know what to do with it. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, am I ever going to create another comic book? Like what the hell is going on? And thankfully, Thankfully, um, Philip Sabic and the whole team at Boom were great, Ross Ritchie, everybody, and they just, they really liked the book ultimately. And they're like, okay, what if we try to turn into two graphic novels? We'll do a two book series. Um, that means you have to write a little bit more to which like is like catnip for any writer. You're like, wait, <laughs> you put more ideas in here? Sold. Um, and so we'll do it that way. And so that's what, a, that became the new plan. So it went from one book, which would be about 250 to two books, which will be about 330 or 40 pages total to so then we had this and we're ready and i've you know i've redone the first book and all of a sudden i get this call and they're like yeah so you know are you cool with the whole single issues plan and i was like what and they're like you didn't you get told that we're, we're going to do this in single issues now and i was like what are you no no i did not hear this you know and again like this is just the one project where somehow our communication back and forth was just always off it was never like you know, I'm, it was never anything ill-intended. Like I wasn't not saying things because I was trying to be sneaky. I just, it was just a weird one. And so now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like I did not write The Last Witch in 20 to 22 page chunks, right? There is not a cliffhanger or an appropriate jumping off point. Like what the heck? And you know, I'm also thinking like single issues, like in, in the time of COVID, like is that, is that the financial move to make with this? Mm -hmm. But what I hadn't known at this point was wind. 
right? I hadn't really been following because I had my head stuck in the ground. I didn't realize that wind had been doing this, had been, you know, kind of changing everything in some ways, right? And James Tinian's book had been like, you know, first of all, it's an amazing book, but like that they'd been kind of changing things with like, uh, you know, how they were doing issues and how they're going to be doing oversizes and how comic shops had really, you know, grabbed onto them and how fans had grabbed onto it. And so when they explained all that to me, we're like, yeah, we'll let you cut it. Like you can basically, as long as no single issue goes more than like say 50 pages, we can make this work. And so then it was like, oh, okay. So then it was me all going back in and rewriting a little bit here and there to maybe be like, okay, let's, let's put the break here. Like at the end of the first issue, that last few in the, at the end of the first issue without giving too much away there is sort of a, a door that was locked that is now unlocked um and there is sort of a a symbol or kind of something a little frightening about the door now and that wasn't really in the original draft that was something like okay i've got to up up i've got to up the tension of this moment um but really that kind of that that's kind of how things everything changed and so now we're going to do the first book is going to be five side issues uh, and i think they range from like 30 pages at the smallest, so like 46 or 48 at the biggest. So there's going to be some really significant reading experiences for everybody, which I think is cool. I kind of hope this is the way you see comics move a bit more in total, just because having done the 20 to 22 page grind, I think you get a lot of really good stuff out of it. But I do think there are rooms sometimes for books that go longer per issue. And I know that as a reader, if you told me I had to pay an extra buck, but I got an extra 15 pages... I wonder overall whether you see whether it's better for um, the publisher. And I think Wind, obviously, they're a huge success there. And, you know, the first issue of Last Witch, you know, did better than any of us were expecting in terms of retailer orders. Um, so there might be something there in terms of what retailers see value in and what readers see value in. So, yeah, so we'll do the first five. And then the second book, that's still up in the air right now in terms of will we continue it as single issues? Will it be released as a second book? Will we do more beyond there? Because of course, you know, now, now that I had to think of something more than just a girl goes into the wood and comes out, I've got all these other ideas. So yeah, it's been a really interesting journey. I've never had a project, you know, metamorphosize as much as this one is. Um, even the title, originally the title was Witchmark. Uh, and then we found out there was a YA series that had some traction that had come out a year or two before. And so it turned into The Last Witch, of which I've just found out that there is another YA series that's published by, a, I think, a pretty, maybe an independent publisher, but I just found it on Goodreads because I've been like, oh, Last Witch reviews. Like, what are people thinking of the first issue? And I found this whole page for this thing called Last Witch, you know, this book one of a three book series. And I'm like, son of a, so, you know, there are no original ideas and I'm just a hack. I mean, we knew this, right? I ripped off Shakespeare to start my career and now I'm just ripping off other people's witch books without it by, you know, just, just a hack voice. That's all I am. <laughs> Uh, which is so hot right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so hot. <laughs> I feel like I'm in Zoolander or something. <laughs> really, really good looking. Um, so how did you meet your uh, artist on this book, uh, Vivi Glass? Was this something that came from Boom? I mean, I looked at their style on this book and as much as I don't like going well this really looks like their style evokes jeff smith right which absolutely fits an all ages fantasy book <laughs> go speak on that mccreary yes um, <laughs> yes <laughs> um so vivi actually it's kind of uh so vivi and i 
Uh, Vivi's based out of the UK. Uh, actually, I hadn't heard the Jeff Smith comparison, but that's actually a really good one now that you mention it. I'm like, oh yeah, there is a lot of Jeff Smith in V's work. So weirdly enough, Vivi and I had been circling to work together on this different Celtic mythology book I'd been working on with this publisher in the UK. Um, and then for a few different reasons that just, it just didn't end up working. Um, but I really like these work. And there's this one image in these portfolio that they'd sent to us for this, uh, for the, this other book called Trickster, which will hopefully come out, I guess, like this fall. Um, and it was this picture of this young woman and this like massive water behind her. And she's kind of in some like, I guess like in, in a cove and it's dark and it's atmospheric and it was really kind of beautiful. And as I was working on Last Witch, I just kept on thinking in my mind, I was like, oh, like, I really love that image. I really love that image. And when Shannon was reaching out to me, Shannon was like, hey, here's some people from, you know, we were considering that we like here at Boom, but if you have anybody else, let me know. And so I kind of dug up these work and I flipped it over and I said, look, I haven't, you know, I, I know this artist a teeny bit, but I haven't spoken to V about this, but what do you think? And Shannon was like, oh, oh, this is like, this is amazing. Like, this is really, really good. And so, yeah, I think I reached out to V and was sort of like, hey, you know, I hope it wasn't the Celtic mythology aspect of the last project you didn't like, because this will be a very short conversation otherwise, but I've got this book with Boom and I think you'd be really, really good for it. And thankfully, V has the kind of the exact same sensibility I do for this, where it's like, we're both trying to make a book that's a little too scary for what you would say it's like intended audience. Um, and I, cause I think like stories like Secret of Nim or The Dark Crystal, which were things when I was younger. I mean, I remember walking into a movie theater. <laughs> Probably says a few things about me. Um, <laughs> and I can't remember what movie I meant to see, but Dark Crystal is out at the same time. And I was super intrigued to see The Dark Crystal, but I was also like super scared. And to this date, that, that, that is me in horror in a nutshell. Like this, every horror movie that comes out, there's like, Dozens every year where I'm like, oh, that looks really, really interesting. But I know I can't see it because I'm way too much of a wuss. Like, there's like, I, I, read, I read Wikipedia summaries before I watch horror movies. Like, because I get just enough information so that I know, like, not to be totally freaked out. But normally they're not so in detail that I can't still not enjoy, like, you know, something like Green Room and be like, oh, that's what happened to the neo-Nazi. Oh, that's how his head got cut off. Oh, that's, what a clever move there, sir. Um, and so, yeah, so V and I both kind of want to make this, like, we want to make this creepy, dark, you know, Irish Celtic fairy tale, grim brother, you know, something that will make a little, you know, make a kid squirm a little bit. Um, and it's actually kind of fun. My, I've, I've kind of given a few copies, don't tell them, uh, digitally to some of the kids in my daughter, who's uh, seven, into uh, kind of some of the kids in her class of slightly older siblings. Uh, um, so even though I read it to my daughter, my five-year-old, son with no problems i'm like not necessarily gonna throw this at somebody else's five and seven year old but i've been hearing a lot of like the nine and ten year olds in the school are like whoa this is really good and are like warning their friends that it's a little scary um but you know really i you know, we wanted this book to be something that as an adult if you read it and you like this kind of like all ages fantasy which i do you would read it and just enjoy and be like oh this is totally something that was written and pitched that i can enjoy it's not you know i don't think you write down to kids I, i'm strongly against that idea i think you write up because kids are A, smarter than you think, and B, what kid doesn't like learning crap? When like, even though they hate school, they love learning. Um, anyway, so yeah, I wanted to kind of be that book where you're, you know, you're reading it to your kid and you're like, I would be reading this on my own. Or like, hey, let's read The Last Witch, even if they're not as into it because you want to get the next chapter. 
Uh, and I really, you know, my kind of secret, secret, secret hope for this book is that there will be a chunk of kids who will read this book or have it read to them who will be a little too young for it. So it'll really kind of scare them in a good way. And that years down the road, they'll be like, that last witch, like, I still remember that book. And they're going to be like, when their kid is a little too young, they'll have dug up a copy, which yeah, cause it'll be in print forever, right? Um, and they'll want to read it to their kid because they're going to want to give them that same, like, I remember being entranced at the magic and it was a little too scary. And I wasn't sure who, I wasn't sure what was going to happen and who was going to live, which I think is kind of a key thing in fantasy for kids. Is I think you need to introduce that notion of people do die and the hero may or may not be safe. And it's definitely going to take a toll. Like it is not going to be, you know, I mean, you look back, it's like kind of the cliche of Disney and we've done it in this book about the idea that there's always a dead parent right off the top. And I, you know, I used to kind of, kind of sniff at that. I remember years ago, I actually created a kid's uh, animated feature that I got some money from, from, from telefilm up here in Canada. And I, uh, for any American listeners and I remember that was the recommendation. I was like, well, you know, what if you killed one of the parents? And I was like, wow, man, every one of these stories, they always kill one of the parents. Like, well, I just want to keep the parents alive. But the more, you, the more you go into it, the more you're like, there really is, there's some rich territory to mine there. And I think really kids really do latch on to that notion of like, oh, somebody's gone. Um, so yeah, that was kind of, that was, you know, and thankfully Dee was like, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's kill some parents. Maybe we'll kill some kids <laughs> Who knows, right? Like, you know, you don't have to go too deep in this book to be like, oh, witches eat children, right? <laughs> um, you know, uh, talking about kind of starting starting kids off on this, you know, who might be, you know, younger than the suggested age, you know, when you were writing this, did, did you have your own children in mind, either as the target audience or as, as sort of inspiration for, for Sersha and Brahm, anything like that? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, Brom is very much uh, my little guy, Lachlan. There's a lot of him and Brom, just kind of because they're the same age, basically. Uh, my daughter Peregrine is because she's only seven. She's not quite the same model for Sersha, but I definitely, you know, I definitely wanted Sersha to be a character that she would be, you know, because at seven, like, you know, why are there more girls in this book? Like, why are we, you know, like she's definitely aware of that. She likes, you know, she's fine watching shows that don't have girls, but she's kind of keenly aware of where girls are kind of marginalized or not interesting characters. And I mean, thankfully, I think most of the stuff that's being made today for kids doesn't do that. I, I think always kids stuff was actually a little better about that stuff than probably stuff for adults really. Um, but yeah, for sure. I, I, I definitely write, like, I remember when I, when I, when I finished the book, the first I guess like I guess draft one and a half we were going on a camping trip this was a couple of years ago you know pre-COVID and so you know my wife was driving for a chunk and so I was reading the script to my kids and like describing the panel stuff um you know I, th- I think they're probably just over six and barely four or something and I remember and I told them about the story so they had a little bit of an understanding and I remember I started reading it and within like eight minutes both of them are crying right because they're like but what? And I'm like, hey, remember, guys, it's going to be like, you know, it's going to be okay. Like, you know, heroes and stuff. Do you want me to stop? Like, this is too much. No, no. So I feel like that was always been a good, a good thing for me is when I read a chunk and my kids are like a little, like, if they get upset and like it bothers them and it makes them angry or sad or that's, that's when I'm like, I've hit something, right? Like they're reacting. Um, they're also really annoying little editors because like they'll go back and be like, dad, this doesn't make sense. 
why can the witch do that here? But then she does that there. Like, that doesn't make sense. She shouldn't have to do that there. It's like, son of a okay you're right we just actually went on a long walk the other day and they you know it's, it's satisfying to have kids at this age it's like dad tell us, tell us about last witch again what's what's happening now and so you know i was telling them about the story and they're asking all these questions and i'm like oh shit none of this is really adequately explained in the script is it like i gotta add some lines of dialogue i gotta, I gotta make <laughs> this more clear like it's in my brain like for sure it's there but i'm like that's not in the script like ah so they're they're good they're good uh you know, they, they try not to make me cry too much when they mock my writing and tell me I'm useless. Um, although it was rather heartwarming, their mother got them to go to a local comic shop with their masks and we got the last copy of, of the first issue from one of the local shops. So that was pretty cool. Oh, that's great. Um, so without saying so explicitly in the book, uh, it is undeniably, uh, you know, sort of Irish, Gaelic, Celtic, you know, from the characters' names, to to terms like like Kalak, which uh, I definitely googled. Uh, I you know I now know what Imbolc is. Um, you know, and, and we talked about it already as sort of the uh, I, I guess pre, you know precursor to uh, Groundhog Day. Uh, just you know, kind of more proof that Western society stole so many of its good ideas from pagans. Um, you know, uh, if. I may be presuming just based off, off your last name, uh, I, I definitely had to check to make sure I was zooming Canada and not like County Cork or something like that. Um, but is, <laughs> is, is, is that a big part of your heritage? <laughs> yeah, so my dad was born, yeah, my dad was born in Dublin on the uh, wrong side of the Liffey, as they say. Um, so yeah, you know, and we, so I always grew up with like Irish, uh, uh, you know, Celtic uh, fairy tales. You know, my mom's family is kind of an old Canadian family, but if, if you go far enough back, they're British, Scottish, Irish too. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I always was kind of introduced. We, we went to Ireland a few times when I was a kid. Um, but I think, you know, what had stuck most, just like the Irish fairy tales that I'd been given to read, they are darker. And they were always like, they were always heroes were losing or losing something valuable or like, you know, and so there's so many of those that just really stuck with me. And there's kind of a beautiful romance to Celtic, storytelling in general and maybe that kind of comes from being a i mean a de facto conquered people right like so many of the stories that have been written down well, would have been written you know after england sort of you know took over ireland and so i i wonder if there's a little bit of that kind of underdog things don't work out mentality that um kind of goes through and you know i think when i first started writing the short story i you know i i, I don't quite know i think i was i think i somehow stumbled across the idea of inbox somehow looking for something else one day and was like oh that's kind of a cool idea and I, that's kind of where the where it all started um but once i kind of started the concept i'm like yeah i might, I might as well lean into this like i i know you know i know enough about this that i feel like i can with some research i can i can make it actually feel real and legitimate um and yeah it's just something i'm interested in and i i feel like you know there's not like there's a shortage of celtic storytelling out there i feel like there's a lot of us you know fake irish or fake scots out there who are like you know you know holding on to the old sod but it's not so overdone and i think some of what hopefully i'm doing with last witch won't you know it hopefully will feel fresh and new for an audience even people who do like celtic mythology um and yeah and i hope you know if we get to continue with this series i've got more ideas for how i can weave more of celtic mythology uh, into it like you know there's some name checks of things like leprechauns and uh, uh banshees but you know we don't get a chance to do too much with them yet 
and kind of, you know, researching a lot of these terms uh, going into this interview. Uh, I, I got to say, you know, in bulk sounds like a sweet idea. Uh, just, you know, having an excuse to party like, I mean, let's face it, this is, this is the pandemic or no, this is the dead time of the year anyway. At least this gives you, you know, something to look forward to. Although it still feels like, you know, springs a, a ways off. <laughs> Let it never be said the Irish can't find a good excuse to drink. <laughs> you said it, not me. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm allowed to. You like you said, the last name of Cree. You know, I know people can't sit with you. I've got a, I've got a very, very. I don't even know what to call this thing on my, on my cheek. But it's definitely a beard. It's definitely very red. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 you know, I can, I can poke fun of my own, I suppose, but yeah, no, for sure. I mean, the Irish love those. I mean, they do, though. The, you know, but that is like the, the Irish are a culture of singing and dancing, and you know, the way, you know, the whole notion of a funeral, right? And I was awake, right? It's singing and dancing, and other cultures have that certainly, but I feel like, you know, you kind of take a step back and you look at Ireland and you're like, you know, really, the brand for Ireland until about 20 years ago should have, you know, it was a very poor nation in Ireland or in Europe, sorry. You know, there was a lot of there's a lot of lingering violence. You know, there was still actual active terrorism in that country. Um, you know, really, the when you thought of Ireland, you should have been like, oh man, that place is a war zone with like a lot of problems and not much good happening. But somehow the Ireland were Irish were able to sell us on St. Patrick's Day and you know dancing leprechauns. You know, everyone oh everybody had this like romantic vision of what Ireland was. And I remember going there as a kid and being like, this place is dirty. You know, like, <laughs> why is there no hot water, right? Like, but, you know, things have changed a lot in 20 years, 30 years even. Just just for the listener, uh, Connor has a beard and it is majestic. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly going in many directions. <laughs> Nan is that great archetype of the, you know, the, the cigar chomping granny, which is a... a one of those characters that pops up. Uh, are you a reader of Discworld? Because the first thing that popped in my head when I saw that character was a character out of Terry Pratchett's Discworld, who is also that archetype. It's funny, actually, because I've read some Terry Pratchett stuff, but I've never read Discworld. And I didn't know about the cigar-chomping granny from Discworld, but I kind of stole her from The Witches and Roald Dahl. Because in witches rolled you know it's this norwegian gremlin she smokes cigars and i always thought that was interesting and there's a there's actually a there is some plot significance uh without spoiling too much there is some plot significance to the cigar beyond just like an affectation or kind of being that fun archetype um and i had kind of wanted to play with that a little bit in the story um but then yeah a bunch of people been like oh my gosh yeah like terry pratchett and i was like Oh, I'd like this is this must be from Discworld because it's you know it's his epic and it, of course I haven't <laughs> read it you know I like read some of the one-off stuff so um, but yeah it is a fun character right like I feel like I feel like there is something fun uh, I was talking to another interviewer and she was like oh man she's like I just want to grow up so I can be like that granny right where I can smoke cigars and not give a fuck I, she's like I want to be that grandmother who's like I do exactly what I want on my block and like. 92% of the parents like hate me because they're just like afraid of like what an old lady might become. But like that small segment are like, yes, I'm, you know, like tell my children what you know, because you've obviously lived life right. So yeah, Nan's fun. Like, you know, in the story, Nan is kind of this, she's kind of the source of some of Saoirse's problems in the sense, like when the story begins in Last Witch, Saoirse is very much, she's clearly marked as an outcast. You know, she's, she's out there with this boy, Padraig. He's basically like, 
I'm your only friend. You know, it's your birthday. Nobody is doing anything for it because everybody thinks you're this freak, right? You live on the outskirts. Your dad is poor, even for like poor Ireland. Um, you know, and you've got this weird grandmother who lives out in the middle of the woods and you've got this ugly splotch on your shoulder, like you're a freak. And Nan is the, is the person in Sersha's life who has always told her that she is special. And she's, you know, she's even told Sersha that this strange, weird splotch on her shoulder, like you were marked for greatness. When I saw you come out, you know, that first day I saw that mark and I knew it meant something special. And Sersha's just turning 12. And so she's kind of at that age where while she still wants to believe everything her grandmother says, she's old enough now where a big part of her is like, this, is, this isn't true. Like, this is something that my grandmother who loves me very much is telling me to make me feel less bad about the fact that I lost my mom. I'm an outcast. I have this weird mark. Nobody likes me. And I also, as much as I love you, I also am starting to get why people are like, you're this weirdo because you live off in the middle of nowhere and you don't seem to want to be around anybody. And I think you're amazing, but everybody else is kind of like, doesn't quite know what to do with you. And so Nan really kind of does occupy. She is this mentor. In some ways, she's a cautionary tale for Sersha because, you know, Sersha still is very committed to wanting to be part of the community and to be seen as a special part of that community. Um, and as the story goes on, you know, Nan is really she is really going to take a mentorship role, but, you know, she's also going to be in some ways the, the thing that Sersha pushes up against the most, right? Because this is going to be the parental figure on this journey. And we're in like the witches with Roald Dahl, that cigar champion grandmother is always like on Sersha's or on the little boy's side and kind of agrees with everything and, and really, you know, pushes him forward every step. Nan is still going to want to push Sersha towards her ultimate kind of goal and destiny in this story like kind of taking on this coven but she's also going to kind of be a mother or a father she's going to be trying to put limits on Saoirse she's she's going to see this power growing in her granddaughter and be concerned about that in some ways and so there there hopefully will be kind of a, an interesting relationship where she doesn't just fit perfectly into that archetype that she kind of breaks out and kind of gets to own her own little space in the you know, in the hall of fame of cigar smoking grandmothers, you know, like just, you know, she's, she's going to get her own pedestal and, you know, I'm, I hopefully, hopefully she, she does stand out within that archetype. But yeah, I definitely like that archetype. It's something that is a lot of fun to play with. And I don't feel like, again, I don't feel it's super overused. So I was kind of excited to get to play with it as well. It's it's funny. Matt went uh, Nanny Og from Discworld with it, and I was like, "No, this is this is Hannibal, man. She, she's here to rescue the A team, and I'm I'm, I'm all about it." <laughs> See, I haven't got that one either. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so you know, from from Last Switch to to Kill Shakespeare to you know Assassin's Creed books, you know, you've got a lot of of fantasy and, and sort of all history on your resume. You know, what what are your your fantasy touch tones? Oh, gosh. I mean, I mean, I guess Wheel of Time, you know, for sure was something I read a lot. Um, the Belgarid, um, Belgariad, I guess, that was another one that I was a really big fan of, and the Malorian. Um, like Grimm's fairy tales, it'd be these, these Celtic fairy tales I grew up with, right? Um, you know, there's a lot of heavy fantasy in that. Um, I just showed my kids Willow, which was a fantasy mm. movie I always really enjoyed. Um, some more... I guess recent stuff. I mean, I, I just watched Wolfwalkers 
Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this. It's an animated film. Same, same people who did Book of Kells. Um, and, you know, like, one of the pull quotes is, like, you know, best animated film of 2020 kind of thing. And that's not hyperbole. It is exceptional. It really is. I, I have, I mean, you know, it's, it's right in my wheelhouse again. It is, it is, it is an English girl and her father who are part of the occupying, part of like basically Cromwell's occupying army of Ireland. That's like all the backdrop, but basically it's the story of this like forest that the, the English want cut down because they want to kind of expand this city. And there are wolves of a magical variety that live in this forest. Uh, and it's the, the way they do, if you've seen Book of Kells, the way they do like kind of like, uh, I assume it's painted cells, like the, the art is just beautiful and it's, it's, it's gorgeous and it's creepy and it's funny. Um, and I, I wish, I wish Last Witch was like half as good as Wolfwalkers is. Like I'm very proud of Last Witch, but Wolfwalkers is so good. I, I saw that and I was like, oh yeah, like I remember Book of Kells now and I'm like, Man, if Last Witch ever gets to become something outside of comics, you know, which, which, you know, I think everybody's like, hey, it'd be cool. I'm like, that, like, I, that studio, if they were ever like, hey, the Last Witch would be our thing, I'd just be like, here's all three of my children. Like, go, <laughs> go, you know. <laughs> that might be the COVID in me talking because it's been a while. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Wolfwalkers, that, that's a new one I really love. And then um, for Last Witch, I would say like one of the other, uh, influences not so much conscious but now that I'm kind of out of it I'm like oh yeah it was a, I was watching Avatar and Legend of Korra with my kids kind of during kind of the process of like the second draft mm-hmm. um, and I get probably even the first draft now that I think of it and so I look back and I'm like oh yeah there's definitely some ele- some similar storytelling elements which uh, especially with Avatar uh, which Avatar I think is also borrowed from other older pieces but there's definitely some of that in there and kind of sticking to a theme, um, the other one I'm really enjoying right now is Dragon Prince. Uh, I'm watching a lot of stuff, obviously, with my kids. And Dragon Prince is by one of the creators, I believe, of Avatar. And it's a really fun fantasy world about uh, humans and elves at war and a dragon's egg that has been stolen, uh, the, which is the dragon's prince, and about this, this, this small group of humans and elves who are working together to try to get this egg back to the dragon to kind of end this war and it's it's funny and it's dark at times and they do a really good job they do it such a good job of like making it a very diverse cast without it feeling forced at all they just it's really nicely done and there are uh there's like a deaf warrior which you don't see so there's 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 sign language in the in the series um which again you, know, you don't see a lot of that I and mean, they it, it just do it really nicely and i think uh that's one i've really been enjoying so those you know those were the kind of the old school ones that that made me love the genre and some of the new stuff that uh i find myself dipping in very easily and you know i'm if my my kids are like hey dad can we watch some dragon's prince i'm like yeah we can (laughs) i got nothing else going on for the next however long like what the (laughs) stove something's burning on the stove don't care you know like (laughs) uh in related news uh we have a lot of uh a lot of scorch marks in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we're getting to the part of the podcast where I turn into a total, very specific sort of geek. Yes, um, all right, I'm here for it. Because you're the co-creator of the Shakespeare character mashup Kill Shakespeare. Uh, for those of our listeners who 
haven't heard me talk about this before, um, my undergrad degree is in English literature with a focus on Shakespearean studies and theater with a focus on dramatic literature and theater history. And I work as a theater administrator. So Kill Shakespeare is catnip for me. <laughs> I am a, an unabashed fan of this book. I've written about it on multiple occasions. I regularly wear the Shakespeare fighting the bear from the Winter's Tale t-shirt. Um, where did the idea from Kill Shakespeare come from? Oh man. So that one, so Anthony Delcall is the co-creator on that book. And so Anthony and I had worked on a couple of, we actually worked with kids projects. We actually had created a kids TV show that we actually optioned here in uh, Toronto. And then it ultimately didn't go anywhere. And so we've been kicking around trying to figure out like, well, what can we do next? And we, I killed Bill was out at the time. And he, here's the hubris of a couple of 20 somethings at the time. We were like, oh, what if we came up with like a really good video game idea, Kill Bill? Like maybe we could sell that back to the studio. Like, no, never in a million years, you dumb idiots. But we were thinking about like, well, you know, we were joking around. We're like, well, who's another Bill we could kill? And we were like, oh, you know, what if we killed um, Bill Clinton? And we're like, yeah, that's a little political. Although, given the Jeffrey Epstein stuff. Uh, and then we were like, what about Bill Cosby? And we're like, well, that's way too political. But as it turned out, we had a thing for identifying sexual predators, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah. So I guess our bills were on track for who we wanted to eliminate. Um, and then finally, Anthony was like, oh, what about Billy Shakespeare? And, you know, we laughed and we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. You'd have like, you know, all his characters get together and they just want to kill the guy because he's made their life miserable. And you'd have like, you know, Romeo and Juliet on one side, Richard III and Lady Macbeth on the other. And then Hamlet was stuck in the middle because, of course, he can't decide what to do. <laughs> and then we took a step back and we're like, you know, that's actually kind of an interesting idea. And then, you know, we went away and we did some serious thought on it. And what really struck me, um, and I think Anthony as well, was the idea that like, you know, all of Shakespeare's stories feel like they could have really credibly gone in a different direction, right? Like, you know, people talk about famously Romeo and Juliet are like, they're like, oh, it's such a weird one of his plays because it really feels like it's one of his comedies. And then it takes this sharp right turn and turns into a tragedy. And it, it's really set up if you're a big Shakespeare geek, you could like point by numbers and be like, oh, in the first few acts, like this is the first three acts, I guess, this is where, oh, this is why it's like every other comedy he's ever written. He's hitting all the beats. And then it just stops doing that. It doesn't do it as tragedy. It doesn't start like his tragedies do, but it ends like his tragedies. It's a really interesting story. But all his stories, you're like, oh man, like a fellow, you know, a fellow could have figured out what Iago was up to. You know, Romeo and Juliet didn't have to die. What if, what if Lady Macbeth, instead of, you know, this badass Lady Macbeth, right? Badass Lady Macbeth. What if instead of after she's part of this, you know, murder plot, instead of her kind of getting cold feet and killing herself off stage, which is, I love Shakespeare, but of all, that's, the, that's I got to say, that's his big, to me, that's his big, I, his big do-over. His Lady Macbeth is way too strong a character to have done that. But what if she didn't? What if, she, what if you know, Lady Macbeth went through the agonies of the damned and felt this heavy weight on her soul because she'd been involved in a murder and realized that murdering people is not a joke and that it really is tearing her apart. And then one day she woke up and she was like, you know, I think I'll have waffles for breakfast. Right. And like realizes that, hey, eventually given enough time, it does heal all wounds. And so that's where we start getting interesting. Like what if Juliet lived? What if Lady Macbeth didn't kill herself? What if Richard III, what if his, those armies that are supposed to come to his aid at the end of his play actually do come and he becomes king? You know, 
what if Hamlet never gets back to Denmark after he says, my thoughts be bloody or nothing worth? Is he, if once he's removed from Denmark and he doesn't have to look at his uncle sitting on his father's throne, is this guy who's been established earlier in the play is kind of like a, kind of a hippie, really. Like he went to, like there's stuff in the, in the context of the play where you can be like, oh, Hamlet's kind of a lefty. And his dad was kind of a strong arm dude. Like they probably didn't see eye to eye. If he doesn't have to see that throne, is Hamlet really hell bent on bloody vengeance or could there be another way for this very charismatic, very deeply feeling young man? And that's kind of where Kill Shakespeare just came out of. We, we said, let's throw Hamlet into this new world. Let's throw it into this world where Juliet is alive and where Richard III is a king and where Lady Macbeth outlived her husband and now kind of finds herself not like subservient to another man, but certainly because of the context of the world we're in, isn't really considered a leader, you know? how does she climb up the ladder? And that's kind of where, where it all started. And I mean, um, you know, we've done the five books in the series. We haven't done much, obviously, for a few years. Um, I actually do have the next two books pretty roughly plotted out. And it's been one of these things like the last two years. I've been like, okay, I'm going to, this is the year I'm going to carve out a few months to write the next two books. You know, and I've, we've chatted with IDW and IDW has always kind of been like, hey, if you bring us more, like, we're happy to do it. Now, it's been a little while, so who knows? But I, I still, I still know exactly where I think that series ends and how it all ties together. Uh, and I would love to still do more with it because uh, it really is such a fun world. And, you know, you can't go wrong when you rip off the greatest writer in history and you rip off his characters. Um, it gives you a leg up. Certainly it's like they say, you know, if you, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to meet people, make, you know, bring your famous friend to a party because like you'll meet everybody. Uh, and I think that's what Shakespeare did for Kill Shakespeare. It brought a lot of people like you, Matt, who were just like, whoa, what the hell is this? And then read the book and were like, oh, these guys, these guys are kind of interesting storytellers. Um, anyway, I think, I think, you know, every once in a while, there's a few things we've done in that book where I'm, you know, all, all kidding aside, I'd like to think that Shakespeare would come in and be like, oh, that was a nice move. I, li I like what you did with Juliet there. You know, then he'd sue us because, you know, <laughs> infringement. But he did say kill all the lawyers. So suck it, Shaky. Who you gonna sue us with, bitch? And, and let's be fair, he stole every plot too. <laughs> the, yes, the, yes. Mid, Midsummer yeah. and The Tempest are both the closest things to original that he has. And even there, like, there's little bits and pieces that are stolen from other places. He just raided every chronicle he could find and be like, yeah, this story seems interesting, but what if there was a mysterious, you know, what if there was a woman behind this? What if there was a whole pseudo-psychological incest thing going on here you know he 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 was he, he stole uh, do you have a favorite shakespeare play outside of you know your great tragedies and great comedies you know the one that's less produced i personally adore measure for measure up until the last act when it kind of completely falls apart in that final act but the first four acts are great Actually, Measure for Measure is a good one. It's funny you mention that because Measure for Measure is one that um, actually would feature prominently in the next couple of Kill Shakespeare books. Because I'm with you, right? The ending of that is very unsatisfying. It's like sets up this very strong female character who's like, the one thing I do not want to do is I don't want, like, I'm not interested in being married to a man. I'm not. I, I want to, I believe in God. I want to be, uh, I, I want to be a nun. Like, that's what I want. 
and she's she's that way the whole time and she's fighting this like evil lecherous man and there's this very good man who's part of the story and is helping her and yeah at the very end not to spoil too much it's kind of like he's like we should get married and she's like okay and you're sort of like whoa what like why why like why wasn't that we should get married and you're like you know what i really love you but i'm sorry you know like i love god more and him being like i'll never meet i'll never meet one as good as you again right like um measure for measure is a, is, is a really fun one uh cymbeline i like cymbeline because like that's um we actually uh so i have a third little one named pierce but if it had been a girl we were going to name it cymbeline which is actually a boy's name but my first daughter peregrine that's also a boy's name so we're like yeah we might as well roll with it like who knows that but cymbeline is that is a that is like shakespeare on steroids it is the weirdest play it has like literally every trope shakespeare's ever put in is like crammed into this play it's got the like the the first draft of iago and this guy named yakimo who is just the same kind of evil like i'll tell you whatever i need to tell you and it's super charming but it's got like it's got you know the the cross-dressing and the, the double crossing like all the tropes are somehow squeezed into this one play that makes very little like linear sense, but is so much fun. And I think I'm biased too, because I saw it one time in Vancouver with like a seven or eight person uh, cast. And like that plays like 12 or 15 characters who are like actually somewhat significant to the plot, which is also makes it a little unusual for Shakespeare. And so the characters, all the actors were playing two or three characters. And there was a couple of them were playing the same character in dialogue scenes so they would talk and then they would just like do a quick spin and then they would be the other character and so it just made the whole thing even weirder <laughs> um yeah that one's up there too and there's one other oh shoot the name of matthew will probably remember this um it's like the one that's like they think shakespeare only wrote like half of it because the first half is like a monster hunting tale and then but the shakespeare <gasps> it, stuff comes in with the woman in the brothel who all the Kinsman? people no, it's not too Kinsman. No, um, um, what is it? It's the, It's got the. It's it's got a piece where the oh thing yeah. that I love about it is Kill there's a me. character in the brothel, and like all the men who come to see her, and she's a virgin, and all these men come to see her, you know, because she's in a brothel and they expect to do brothelly things. But because she's so good and lovely, she just sits and chats with them, and like they just kind of end up like, oh, their problems are solved, and they leave, and they're like, you know, it's I didn't really need sex with a woman. Like what I really needed to do was work on myself. Like thank you, virgin you know prostitute like i really appreciate the help but I'm, i'll have to look it up because it's like I, I i and that one stuck with me because i saw a claymation version of it one time which was awesome but like the first half is like gulliver's Twat travels or like the Iliad or something like that is it's guys hopping from island to island fighting monsters it's, it's, and then it's familiar and I, it's like two noble kinsmen is the, always the one that pops one that is like half shakespeare but yes. like now that it's, it's like no it's clearly not because that's not two noble kinsmen at all but now you yeah i vaguely know you and it's completely out of my brain which yeah are, over there. i like that yeah. no. <laughs> That didn't help. That Google search did not bring. Although there is probably called Shakespeare Catch a Monster play box, so I don't know what that is, but that seems like uh, pretty good. Um, good to know. All right, I'll have to, I'll have to, I'll have to, I'll have to, I'll have to look this up some other time. But yeah, that's those are ones that are just. I wouldn't say they're like the best ones, but they are. I mean, Measure for Measure, like you said, is a really good one. Uh, except the ending is, I think, especially by today's standards, is unfortunate. Cymbeline um, is just bonkers it's not one of his better ones but it's joyful oh and this is Peric i think it's pericles is the one i'm thinking of mm. i think it's pericles is what i'm thinking of which again they don't do a lot but it is just it's another batshit crazy one which is sometimes you forget shakespeare was pretty batshit crazy <laughs> oh yes i i'm now that you're saying it i mean pericles is definitely another partial 
written Shakespeare. And it has been, that's one of the f- ones that I've only read, you know, once a very long time ago. And I always say, I'm going to get around to reading the entire canon again. Instead, I wind up reading Macbeth for the 50th time. Oh, because... Don't don't read Pericles. Like, just find the, just find, like, like you know, like, Google, like, Pericles, like, bizarre production. And that'll probably be the most satisfying version of that. Um, but people do, they forget that Shakespeare's got some edge when I, I, you know, I used to do a lot more of this, obviously pre COVID. And when we were doing more kill Shakespeare, we used to do a lot of school visits and I would always talk about Titus Andronicus because like, there's some parts you can't talk to the kids for that way, but there is, you know, there's this great scene where, you know, you know, you find out that, um, Tab- you know, Tamara has, you know, her boys have gone and attacked Titus's daughter and they do horrific things to her and they, they rip out her tongue so she can't tell anybody who was responsible and they cut off her hands so she can't even draw their names on a piece of paper. But Titus still finds out who's behind it and he invites Tamara over as kind of like it's this idea, we're gonna have a meal, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna have a piece, you know, we're, we're gonna quash this beef, we're gonna we're talk this out, this is, this is bad for the realm to have us at each other's throats. And he makes her this lovely pie and she you know, she's eating this pie and she's like, oh my, like, what is this? Is this like veal? Is this venison? Like, what is it? He's like, no, it's your kids. Like he's killed their, he's killed their boys, chopped them into little pieces, baked them in a pie and then served them to their mother. Right. And like, so that didn't do well for like increasing the peace in that play. But like, I tell that to kids and I'm like, you'll never read this play because like somebody's parent in this room would find out this was in this play and would just go ham and your poor English teacher is just not paid enough to deal with this. And like, there's always an English teacher who's like, mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, like, and the kids are like, wait, that's in a Shakespeare play? Like, people getting cut up and like hands cut I'm like, yeah, man, Shakespeare's hella violent. They just don't give you the good ones. So yeah, Shakespeare, hella violent. That should be our new t-shirt. Damn right. Um <laughs> uh- one of the first Kickstarters I ever backed, and as everyone who listens knows, I back a lot of Kickstarters, uh, was for the Kill Shakespeare board game from IDW. Um, I'm pretty sure you're the first creator we've had on here who's had their creator-owned property turned into a board game. Uh, how'd that come about? Uh, you know, that was that was kind of a bit of a serendipity. So IDW uh, was starting to kind of push into some other things, and they had just developed a board game division. And so they had a few licenses for games that they were like, you know, that they knew were going to work. And they, they wanted, to, they had an idea. They had these two game designers who uh, had made a game called, oh, it's going to, I'm going to blank on it. Uh, it was this really cool um, game set in feudal Japan. I'm going to, anyways, it's out of my head for now. Anyways, long story short, they had these game designers. The game designers loved designing in sort of like medieval type. They'd wanted to do something in like medieval Europe and Kill Shakespeare or IDW was like, oh, well, we've, we've got this Kill Shakespeare comic book let's talk to the guys because you know anthony and i had we had the rights for the book beyond you know all the rights beyond just the comic and so they reached out to us and said yeah we have these uh yato that's the name of the game they're like we have these uh two belgian dudes who designed this amazing game called yato and we want to work with them and they want to do something in a in a medieval european setting would you be willing to to lend kill shakespeare to to that and so they sent us a copy of the game and we played the game uh, and it's a really deep, complicated, but very elegantly designed game, which is kind of the Kill Shakespeare board game. It's you know not a not a sit down and play in ten minutes thing by any stretch. And yeah, we were just like, wow, this is really cool. And it was really neat because both the designers and IDW were really like, hey, like, would you guys like we want you guys to write the flavor text? And it ended up we really ended up getting a chance to really get in there 
and help not shape the gameplay, but shape the narrative that's, that the gameplay was, was structured around. And that was really cool. It was a really, I'd never done anything like that before. And yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool to say like, hey, we have this board game based on our comic. I mean, we, when we were shopping Tell Shakespeare Around as a TV show, which we're hopefully going to do again uh, in later this year when things kind of get back to normal, but definitely be like, oh, well, it's this comic series. It's got a board game. It's got a stage play. And people would just be like, what? And you're like, don't look at how many units the board game sold. Don't ask us where exactly the stage play has been performed, but it does exist. And, you know, people would just be like, oh, my. And the board game, though, that was always, we'd bring a copy of the board game and we just put it there. And people would just be like, it's like they'd never seen a board game before. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was always kind of fun. So you've, you've written Shakespeare's characters. You've written Sherlock Holmes. Are there any other characters of great characters of literature that you'd like to write in comic form at some point? You know, I've always kicked around an idea of modernizing um, some of Oscar Wilde's stuff. I like Oscar Wilde. Uh, I think he's a really great fighter. And of course, there's a portrait of Dorian Gray is a really... Um, is one of my favorite uh, pieces. And so I've, I've, I've kind of wanted to update that as kind of like the status of Dorian Gray or the story of Dorian, but I think there's something interesting. I've always loved that idea of like that painting, right? That shows the corruption of Dorian. You know, Dorian Gray lives this like, kind of like very like, you know, uh, and not a very like refined life. You know, he decides, you know, he finds that this painting can take all the ravages of drinking and whoring and all this stuff. And so he goes out and he drinks and he whores and he smokes and he does everything he can. And I've always thought there'd be something interesting about setting that in high school with somebody having some sort of social media presence that's the social media presence they present to the world. But then there's this like secret locked account where all their hidden secrets really are. All the double crossing, all the awful stuff they've done all exists on this like weird locked social account that maybe shouldn't even be there. So I'd kick that around. I think that would be an interesting thing to play with. Um, I just haven't quite noodled it all the way out, but that would be one for sure. Uh, and I also have, I guess I've, I've, I've toyed whether this would be, whether I could do this as a graphic novel or not, but there's uh, Dylan Thomas has a poem called uh, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night, which is all about his father dying and about him wanting his father to not give in to dying, to fight it. Uh, and I, that always struck me. And so I've, I've always had this idea about a young woman whose uh, grandfather, who she loves very dearly, is dying of cancer. And he's kind of the Swedish, you know, emigrated years ago, you know, worked in a mill, you know, worked with his hands, salt of the earth type guy. And when he gets the diagnosis, he decides to start building his own coffin because he's a woodworker and that's what he can do. And if he's only got so much time left on earth, he's going to make sure he goes out in style. And this is something that helps bring him some peace. And it's kind of about this family dealing with this, you know, the, his daughter can't take this very well. Like she lost her mother a couple of years ago. And the fact that her father is seemingly just willing to give in, really, she can't deal with it. And then there's kind of a, a semi weird tragedy that happens with her husband. And he's kind of left without anything to do in his life. And he loses his job and he's kind of becomes this pariah in this town and he spends more time with his father-in-law who he's never really gotten, like they're, they're friendly, but they never really, you know, his father-in-law was always this kind of quiet, could do everything type. And he was always a little intimidated. And all of a sudden he's over there as his father-in-law is getting weaker and older and he's helping him build this coffin. And when his wife finds that out, 
you know, then shit really hits a fan. But, you know, it was something I always held on to. But now the way comics are changing, like there, I think there is more room for that kind of literary fiction. Like when, you know, even 10 years ago with Kill Shakespeare, there were, you know, you could start to do that stuff in YA. Like, you know, I think in YA for sure, we've always said in comics, like, yeah, you can tell, you want to really dig deep and tell like a, a serious story, we can do that. But I think we're starting to slide a bit more where you could maybe do something like almost like the indie film thing, but in comics. So there's, yeah, there's a few literary things that have always struck me that have, have been really inspiring for me, but you know, who knows? We'll see which, we'll see, uh, you know, after Last Witch, I just, you know, I hope Last Witch goes well. I hope people like it. I hope the next couple of things I've got on the docket go well so that people keep offering me stuff. And who knows, maybe that Goonies with Ghosts, maybe, maybe, maybe it won't sink a third publisher. Maybe third time's a charm, right? I mean, <laughs> how many, how many, how many shops can it drive bankrupt? <laughs> Definitely a good elevator pitch. Um... So you've got a background in journalism, um, covering sports, finance, celebrity gossip. Uh, I imagine among other topics, uh, you know, what, what was your favorite, what was your favorite beat? Ah, uh, um, you know what? I mean, I saw right now I mostly write, uh, you know, I don't write that much, but I, I, I do write about basketball, which I love. I'm a huge sports nerd. I'm one, one of those like weird sports comic nerds that like, you know, some of us exist. I, I feel like there's yeah. more of us now, but like, there's not, a, you know, I feel like maybe we were quiet about it before. You know, we used to be like deathly enemies, but uh, you know, I, I, I got beaten up by the sports guys and the geek kids in high school, I guess. Um, you know, you like the wrong hockey team. You didn't read Discworld. Uh, <laughs> but uh, my favorite beat, actually, I was really fortunate when I probably about, 10, 12 years ago now. Um, I was really fortunate that I, I ended up visiting some friends of mine who were living in Ghana in the West Coast of Africa. Uh, mm-hmm. And a buddy of mine was working there uh, with a newspaper. He was working, uh, I can't remember if he was working with journalists for human rights or not. But long story short is I kind of just, I'd, I'd been working for Business News Network here in Toronto for a number of years uh, as a financial journalist. And when I went over there to visit my friends, I kind of was like, hey, well, you know, during my days, well, you know, they were both working. Rather than, you know, I'll, I'll walk around and see the city and, and explore Ghana a little bit, but, you know, it'd be nice to have something to do. And so I started volunteering at this newspaper, you know, just whatever they needed, right? Like, you know, I had a background in journalism, you know, did you want me to copy edit? Did you want me, you know, I'd talk to a younger reporter if, if they wanted me to talk about, you know, how we do journalism in Canada, you know, the compare and contrast kind of stuff. Uh, and after my buddy ended up li- leaving, him and his wife ended up going, you know, they were doing a kind of a tour around the world. Uh, so they headed off to their, ne- their next stop. And I kind of just stayed. Uh, and so I ended up staying for about seven months and ended up working for this newspaper. And I, I got to cover, I got to do an expose on orphanages there. I got to cover um, you know, the literary scene there. Uh, I, I wrote about politics. Uh, I had feces tossed at me. Um, uh, I was... Uh, uh, I was uh, in a couple of riots uh, while I was there. Uh, I interviewed actually the uh, Zimbabwe, interviewed the opposition party in Zimbabwe because uh, there was a big African Union summit there. And so they came and, you know, they, the editor kind of trotted me out. I was, you know, the Western, you know, the white Western dude. So this was a way to kind of, in some ways, I think I was a bit of a showpiece. Uh, hey, look, I've got this white Western guy who works my newspaper. You know, and I don't pay him very much. So this is awesome. You suck it, white. You know, suck it, whitey. Um, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't that, but there was there was a bit of that, you know, which was fair play. Um, and so you know, I did this interview, and uh, the next day, I remember I was out uh, doing this orphanage story. So I was off outside of Accra, which is the capital, and you know, I had no cell phone signal, 
and I get back into town at you know, five, six in the evening after doing my interviews. And my phone is just filled with like messages, texts, like get into the office, like, you know, get in the office now. Gabby, who's the owner of the paper, he needs to see you. I was like, what the hell? So I'd only been there, I'd only intended to be in Ghana for six weeks. And I'd been there by that point, like four or five months. And so I only had clothes for six weeks and I'm really cheap. So I just like let the clothes I own fall into like total disrepair rather than buy new clothes. I bought a couple of pieces, but not very much. So I generally look like a, I generally look like a hobo or something like that walking around and on this day like i'd been out you know i saw it was dusty and muddy and like holes i looked like i looked like a hot mess and i come into the office and they're like, oh my God, where have you been i'm like you guys knew where i was so anyway so i go up and in the office is you know the guy who owns the paper uh you know he's in his private office and there's this big dude with like military jacket and the brass buttons and the 19 things and he looks me up and down and he looks over to uh, Gabby, the guy who owns a paper. And he goes, you're right. He's not a very impressive white. And I was like, normally, like, normally I was like, you know, you know, and you know, like, there's like, you know, I lived in Ghana long enough, like all the, all the, like, it's just people don't, you know, you, you don't know what you don't see, right? So I had heard all sorts of weird comments about being white and stuff. And, you know, it never bothered me, right? Because you're like, yeah, like people, they just don't know, right? Like, let's sit and have a conversation. It was never anything malicious or, or mean. This was like the first time somebody had said something like that was really, that was really racist, right? As opposed to just out of like, hey, I don't have a lot of white people in my neighborhood. Like I have some questions. And I was kind of like, my first instinct was like, I don't care. Like, you know, clearly you're some sort of military man, but like, fuck you, like white entitlement privilege right here, buddy. Like, fuck off. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. But you know, I'm generally pretty, keep my temper pretty well and so I just like was like I just didn't say anything and so the guy like kind of gave me the hairy eyeball and he walked out and so he leaves and I'm like you know what the hell was that about well it turned out that was the minister of defense from Zimbabwe who had read my article the day before with the opposition party and for those of you who didn't know the Zimbabwean political world that was Robert Mugabe who was one of the great dictators of our time who like murdered you know millions you know t- well, not millions but certainly thousands of people um and had not liked that this newspaper had done this big thing with the this opposition party who, you know, we, we had them calling out Mugabe and saying all these things about how bad he was. <laughs> now I look back, and I'm like, oh, that's why you have me do that interview, right? Because like, he didn't <laughs> want to put any of your guys in, in the line of fire, which again, fair enough. I have an embassy I can run to if I had to. <laughs> but yeah, this guy had been waiting. And apparently, apparently he'd been like, had a car and was like, going to pick me up and take me into the car. And where I was going to go after that, who knows? And my boss has spent the whole time calming this guy down, like hours upon hours. This guy had waited in the office, waiting for me to like, whatever. And it basically had settled on like, look, you know, kind of know how white people are and how they like, how they judge Africa and how they think they know everything. And look, when you meet this guy, he's not impressive at all. Like, honestly, this guy, like, I just keep him around just, you know, to give him something to do, basically. Like, I feel bad for the guy. Like, when you see him, he looks, he doesn't, he looks like he doesn't even have two, de- two nickels to rub together. Like, he's not, he's not credible at all. Don't worry. And so, of course, I walk in, you know, looking like I fell off a turnip truck kind of thing. And yeah, <laughs> thankfully. So the guy looks at me and he's like, yeah, you're right. Like, he isn't impressed at all. And he got in the car and away he went. And years later, I found out from a friend of mine that apparently I was then put on a, a travel ban to Zimbabwe. So if I'd ever tried to get into Zimbabwe, my name would have been on some sort of list. But so that was a very long roundabout story of saying that that was a really, I learned so much in that trip. I learned so much about being 
So one person in a room, which was, you know, new for me. Uh, the people of Ghana are, are some, it, it really is, uh, it's a lot like Canada to me. It's like this very friendly, very kind, very good sense of humor. They've got this big neighbor in Nigeria. So they have almost that Canada-US relationship where um, they're kind of overshadowed in some ways. And so I think that makes them, they don't take things as seriously. Uh, I can't recommend traveling to that country highly enough. It's, it's just a really, it's a really cool place. And even like how the country was founded, it was really founded in, it's the first nation to get independence in sub-Saharan Africa, um, with the exception of South Africa, which kind of, for many reasons, doesn't really count. Um, and they have this big black star. If you watch soccer, there's a big black star on their flag. And that's because they, they want to be the star of Africa. And so they've made a real point of everything in their society. They have this societal like vision of we have to be as like fair and equitable and good as we can, because we can do it then we can be a model for our neighbors, which is a really cool thing when you think of it for a country to be like, that's our purpose, right? Like, you know, Canada, our purpose is beating America in hockey and guzzling maple syrup. I don't know, like, you know, <laughs> you know, like, I, you know, it's a good country too. But so that was a really fascinating, I just, I got a chance to, to, to cover everything because, you know, it was a small paper. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a really great, great experience except for the fact that the uh the guy who owned the paper would often just edit my stories and completely like completely change the stories i wrote and the last story i'll tell him this really quickly was um reuters i think it was reuters was in town and they were doing like a symposium for all the journalists to come in and they were going to go through like traditional reuters journalism and maybe it was i think it was reuters um <laughs> and it's one of the guys this guy suleiman came back to the office he's like oh connor and i'm like what he's like oh connor i'm like what dude he's like they were showing us a piece on bad writing and i was like oh well yeah was it really bad he's like it was your piece and i was like what <laughs> i'm like okay i'm not a newspaper journalist by trade but i'm not I'm like really <laughs> and it turned out to be this article that i'd written like two days before because ghana had discovered oil offshore and i had been like basically like slow your roll it's going to take a long time to develop this there are here are all the possible problems like it is very exciting it could be a great boon for the economy but there's a lot of stuff that is going to have to be figured out and dealt with. And, you know, here's where it is regulatory, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and the guy who wrote the paper was like, well, that's not sexy enough. And so he just started like, black gold, Texas tea, God, I will become the new petrol power. And like, it was just a completely like the first like six paragraphs, seven paragraphs are just, just like, just like, woo, yeah. <laughs> you know, like fire your guns in the air. Everything's amazing. And then like the, the last half of it is all my boring technical, like, oh, so, you know, according to this, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, and then I guess for the first thing, it'd been like, this is horrible writing. It's not, you know, it doesn't make sense. It's like, it's not what a paper should be doing. It's not objective. So I'm like somewhere, I'm probably on another list at like Reuters and Bloomberg where they're like, never hire this asshole because he does not know how to write. So yeah, you know, it's it it an interesting experience. I got put on lists. That, that's, you know, who, who doesn't want to be put on a list? <laughs> it's true. Ah, uh, man. Um, what are you reading right now? Uh, what am I reading right now? Um, I'm, I actually, so I was reading um, Gene Yun Lang's uh, Dragon Hoops because I'm a mm. big basketball nerd. So I've been reading that. And I've been really enjoying it. Uh, I've been reading, I've finally gotten kind of getting into Monstrous, which I was way behind on. Um, what else am I reading? I've got, uh, oh, I'm reading um, Blue is Green, the Ram V mm. book, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, which is a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool one. Uh, I'm reading a series of short stories by a Canadian author named Chris Benjamin called uh, Boy with a Problem, uh, <laughs> which is 
really good. He's a really talented guy out of Halifax. Um, and I'm just blanking on it because I just started a new fantasy series. Actually, not just. I started a while ago and I kind of dropped it. Oh, shoot. What's it called? Uh, I can't even think of it now. This is awful. Uh, but it's got a really good magic system. Um, and its name is totally not there. Uh, it'll come to me later. But yeah, so I've got a few things on the go. But um, I think the other big thing, I think like a lot of people I maybe is I've been pulled into obviously like the last year or so. There's, you know, shit's been real. Uh, and so yeah, I've been reading a lot of long form journalism and just kind of trying to understand better what's going on and, you know, maybe confront some of my own biases about stuff. And, um, you know, <laughs> while still trying to call the Trump trolls on Twitter fascist dickbags, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to be both conciliatory and understanding of others while also like, I got to say, I, I have, I've gotten into more Twitter fights in the last year than I have in my entire life. Cause you know, you, you know, you used to read stuff, you'd be like, whatever. Okay. Whatever. I don't even have time. And now you're like, actually, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> you're ridiculous. Like, you know, I think I, I called out a U.S. Senator for like, for like, you know, I was like, he was, he made some comment about the, the Capitol storming. And I'm like, you know, and he's like, oh, you know, now I'm, you know, there's, there should definitely be the death penalty for these people. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, were you confused? Did you originally think these were black people who stormed? Like, is that why you're calling for the death penalty? Because this guy's record is awful, right? Like, he is, he is not a good human being. And I'm just like, why did I do that? I just like, I just called the U.S. Senator and just said basically that he wants to kill black. Like, I mean, you're might getting yourself on another list. <laughs> yeah, seriously, right? It's lists, lists, and lists, baby. No, no Arkansas for you, buddy. Um, so yeah, um, yeah, it's been, it's been just, just been feisty, just been feisty lately. I, you know, we, we've all been a little cooped up, and I, I, I've, I've said it a couple times since the election, but 300 million people need therapy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Therapy or like two more, two more political parties, you know, like have a, have a Sanders party so you can have somewhere where the progressive ideas live so they can be with people who are not like instantly knee-jerk, like terrified of, you know, socialized medicine. And then you can have the, the you know, the Republicans and the Dems can be kind of their middle ground basically the same thing and then have the trump party you know and like at least you know that it's there and you know kind of how many people really actually think that way and then hopefully people like oh god my like dad's friend who's a polish immigrant to canada who then went down to the states and has suddenly become this rampant trump supporter and like couldn't ever not vote for a republican and you're like motherfucker you emigrated to canada for you're an immigrant like how on earth like you, and you're, you know, like, you know, at least maybe, maybe that lets him vote for just a run of the mill Republican dude who, hey, you know, sometimes, sometimes you got to switch from right to left. I'm a lefty type dude, but, you know, in this country, I voted for Brian Mulroney when I was younger. Like, you know, and I voted NDP, I voted Green, I voted everywhere. I feel like if you, I kind of feel like you got to, depending where the world is, you need different things at different times. I've never understood that, like, I vote for Republicans and that's all I can vote for, you know, or vice versa. But anyways, that's that took a weird right-hand turn by the last witch. It doesn't have any politics in it at all. <laughs> what, a, what a fantastic note to end on. Uh, Connor, uh, <laughs> how can people uh, follow you online and, and keep up with the last witch and everything else you're working on? Oh, after that, sir, people be like, delete this guy. Um, so I'm on Twitter under Connor McCurry. You can also find us under Kill Shakespeare Twitter. Uh, Facebook is both my name, Connor McCurry, and there's also Kill Shakespeare Facebook page, which I do posting for Last Witch and stuff. Um, I've got an Instagram, The Real Connor, which is mostly pictures of my kids. Uh, but if you're into that, they're really cute. 
uh, yeah, and uh, we do have a website, killshakespeare.com, which is currently under construction. I'm, I'm really a hot, I'm really a big old mess with this stuff right now. But uh, yeah, the biggest, the best places you can just find me. If you look for me, probably on Twitter is where I engage with people the most. And I, I do love hearing from people. I, I love getting, I really actually do like when I hear people give me ideas and thoughts and stories and, and what's striking them and what they like. I do try to reply to everything um, <laughs> because I'm not Jeff Lemire and I have more time on my hands. Uh, so yeah, but yeah, please, you know, I'd love to hear people reach out and I'm, I'm really excited. Issue two is coming out in about, I think, two and a half weeks. And, uh, you know, the first issue is a bit of a slow burn. Uh, it is a bit of a, really a character piece. Uh, the second issue, things get a little crazy. Um, and that kind of scary stuff starts, uh, starts picking up. There's one panel that every time my wife picks up, she's always like, oh, you know, nothing inappropriate for kids, but definitely like, hopefully, you know, hopefully for the, you know, the, the adult, you know, the parents listening or just people who love fantasy adventure, you, you get to issue two and I think you'll be very satisfied. You'll realize it's for, it's for you as well. All right, Connor, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate, uh, appreciate you waiting for me. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is now part of ComicsXF, formerly Xavier Files meaning you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Chris's on Infinite Earths, and a ton of great comics criticism at ComicsXF.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel Spider-Woman series, and Lan M from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, Remember to spay and neuter your good night and good luck. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.